everyone. This is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. If you're listening to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Hey, Kyle. Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Great. great. And your connection is great. Yeah, you sound, you sound wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm here in rainy Los Angeles, uh, which is nice to have a little bit of a change for once in a while. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm- we're in snowy Berlin. Exactly. I would take I would take your side of the equation. The the novelty cold. Honestly, <laughs> I'm actually feeling the snow. It's the first snow of the year and it's always I don't know. The the first snow is always really nice. It hasn't, you know, the cars haven't turned the snow brown yet. It's still like kind of <laughs> freshly laid. It's it's really kind of peaceful. It's not gnarly yet. It's not gnarly. It starts to get gnarly in January, February. Yeah. December is mm. still still good. <laughs> <laughs> so would you mind uh introducing yourself for our listeners, please? Sure. So I'm an artist. I'm based in Los Angeles. I've got a bit of a technical background. I studied some computer science when I was younger, and I spend a lot of my time writing code and working with code. Um, I got into the arts through music originally, um, looking at interactive, uh, improvisational, performative stuff with a lot of Macs. And then that led me to computer vision and that led me to interactive installations. And, um, it's been a long journey, but, um, it's kind of continued in this sometimes more conceptual direction, like some of this work I've been doing with Ethereum recently. And sometimes it's still in this very, uh, kind of retinal aesthetic, um, installation, like I do this piece called light leaks um, with a bunch of disco balls. <laughs> That's very shiny. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it can still be, it can still be shiny sometimes, which is actually how we all met um, through gray air foundation and, and through shiny. Um, I think actually the first time I met you, Matt was when gray air foundation was still on market street. Um, you had Lauren and I, my partner, Lauren McCarthy and I run this appropriating interaction technologies workshop do you remember that it was like i do remember 14 or something it was a long time wow. ago and Ushiny, i remember very well and it's funny that i use that term quite a lot divorced from the con- <laughs> its original context but yeah i do think yeah it would have been it would have been around 2014 which is absolutely wild yeah i remember it was a really special time lauren and i were there for just um i think we were there for a few months doing the uh residency at Pier nine. Um, yep. And I remember you saying something, you know, like normally it's 
the instructors got $50 per class and you decided to give us each $50. And we were like, wow, this is a really upstanding organization. <laughs> that <laughs> also so sounds think- like me. Holly's like shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. That that's enough, not enough for a class. No, I know. That's I know. But- <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was exactly what we needed at the time. And I think everyone got a lot out of it. So I, that's you great. know, it, only good feelings towards that moment. Um, but yeah, generally, if anyone else is listening, don't pay artists $50 per class. <laughs> Especially not in San Francisco. Oh, totally. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, this is coming back. Uh, yeah. Matt, what Matt was fighting for the doubled price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shout out, shout out uh, Barry through who yep. I hope, I hope listens uh, to this podcast. And, and of course, gray area is still, still going, still fighting. It's crazy. Yeah. It's still going. I'm I'm hoping to work with them on a project soon related to some blockchain stuff. But um, that's yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. They've you know continued to be a leader in this space in many different capacities, and I respect a lot. It's wild to think that 2014. It seems like yesterday, but of course, in internet years and given everything that's occurred, it's so long ago. It occurred to me recently thinking back to like you know a lot of the Fat Lab stuff. Yeah. W- would you mind maybe like talking a bit about that? Actually, sure. yeah, because yeah. I think because I think that's actually a really cool context to address some of this, uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about. And I'm not sure too many people are familiar with that project, but I feel like it's really worth reviving for now. Yeah, I totally. Um, so Fat Lab was a free art and technology lab it started in iBeam, I think around 2007, mainly with uh, I think it was Evan Roth and James Powderly who started it. Um, out of their work with Graffiti Research Lab. And the whole the whole premise of Fat Lab was basically like release early, release often. It was a lot of the open source ideology like applied to the art uh, space and trying to think about, you know, anti anti copyright and uh, anti corporation. And, you know, there was a lot of like fuck Flickr and fuck Yahoo and uh, all the stuff that was, you know, trendy to be against at that time. Um, Fat Lab was trying to find ways to like sort of creatively um, oppose it. Um, And sometimes that came in the form of, you know, um, like browser extensions for Chrome. And other times it was like, you know, (laughs) one time we made a, um, like we made a fake Google earth, um, street view car that like had fake cameras on it. And we like, I did a joy ride around New York city and just kind of created a bunch of negative publicity for Google, making people think that like the Google street view car was, you know, doing donuts in front of the Google headquarters and stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's been all over the place. And Fallab was really supportive for me and like, hmm. I started working with them in like 2010 or 11 through Theo Watson. Um, We were making some browser extensions and other little interventions that use computer vision in funny ways. And um, I went to, well, I I was like investigating kind of facial expressions at the time and the way that computers sort of mediate the way that we interface with each other um, and use our face, especially Um, because I was learning about like all these ways that our body is affected by our facial movements. Like everyone knows, you know, when you smile, then you feel better, but there's a bunch of other stuff. Like if you just kind of tighten the lids around your eyes a bit and you like kind of smirk a bit, then your heart rate will actually rise. Like as you start to present anger, um, 
And I just thought like, wow, I do none of this stuff when I'm in front of my computer. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm like writing an angry email or something. I just don't do any of this. Am I like becoming less human or something? And so I, <laughs> I wanted to like investigate this. So I went to a space where I felt I could like take pictures of people without telling them um, <laughs> and uh, have it be kind of okay. So I went to the Apple store and I installed this software on all the computers in the Apple store in New York to take photos of people who are standing in front of the computers and then post them to Tumblr. And um, I got all of these photos of just like people with completely blank expression on their faces, the, exactly <laughs> the thing I was thinking about. And um, yeah, it was an interesting kind of photo project, but it sort of turned into, turned into like a <laughs> big, big problem. Not, and not everyone else agreed with me that it was interesting. Apple basically decided to send the Secret Service to raid my apartment. And oh, wow. uh, they, you know, got in contact with Tumblr and Vimeo and Flickr and had them all take the content offline and threatened me with a legal, you know, um, sent their lawyers after me, that kind of thing. Um, and it was a few months till I got my laptop back from the Secret Service after they raided my apartment. But um, it all turned out fine in the end. And, uh, you know, they kind of, <laughs> they brought me more publicity than I was expecting. And so that was a Fat Lab project. And Fat was really like supporting me through that and making sure that I knew I had, you know, friends I could rely on and people who were lo loaning me laptops and, <laughs> um, you know, supporting me online. And yeah, it was a really good community. And we still have kind of a back channel where we chat about stuff, even though we basically ended it um, some years ago, I guess, uh, maybe like five years ago at this point. But um, how yeah, was your yeah. how was your Secret Service experience? I wonder because yeah. <laughs> one imagines it to be like a really kind of adrenalized experience, and then my other my other intuition suggests it might be were they just like over it? Well, I mean, I wonder like what what <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can also see it yeah. being a really banal experience. Well, I have a question: was it a, was it scheduled? Like were they like we're dropping by on Friday at four p.m. or did they was it just like <laughs> bam 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 on the door? No, it was literally like. You know, it's the middle of summer. Let me, I'll set the scene for you. So it's the middle of summer in Brooklyn, right? It's super hot. It's probably 90 degrees. I'm sleeping in my boxers and it's 8 a.m. Because I was up until like 3 a.m. the night before coding. I'm still sleeping at 8 a.m. And I just hear a bang, bang, bang on the front door. And I'm in the bedroom that's immediately adjacent to the door. So it's really loud. I like kind of jump out of bed and I go kind of, just barely open the door and I see three guys in suits kind of with their hands at the, at their right side, mm. um, getting ready to like do whatever they need to do next. And they sort of shove a warrant in my face and, um, put their foot in the door to keep it open. And they say, you know, we're here to raid your apartment. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> it was, it was not planned. It was not something they, you know, right. you don't, when you think there's evidence, you don't tell someone. That would have been nice. Um, but the, the, <laughs> the funny thing was I, I have always been, um, in a kind of, uh, 
my head's always been a little bit in the clouds and um, it was really hard for me to like realize or understand what was going on. And I just completely ignored any of the advice that was like, don't talk to cops. I was uh, like giving them my password. I was like <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> everything. I would, and I was like trying to be super nice. I was like, damn, you guys are like in these super thick suits. And uh, can I like get you a glass of water or something? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, Do you think that I helped think- or hurt you? I think it really disarmed them, but it yeah. sort of made them dislike me more. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, what's they, he up to? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they were like trying to ask me all these questions like, what international hacker collective are you part of? And I was like, well, we were just doing donuts outside of Google. I mean, is that a, <laughs> does that count? <laughs> like, could we get in trouble for that? I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I was really. You're still in a database somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, no I, got my, I got my FOIA from them a few years ago. It's like 100 pages long and it's got all these conversations between you know secret service agents talking with apple and like taking note like scrawling notes about like you know says he's an artist like (laughs) (laughs) great now they're going to be suspicious of all of us oh i'm sure (laughs) i'm sure yeah but it was yeah it was an interesting experience and like i said fat lab was really there for me through the whole thing and I, I learned a lot from it and um it took a few years to kind of like emotionally recover because um i didn't realize how trauma- traumatic it was at first but yeah. um now i can look back and like really see that in some ways it was like the beginning of me being radicalized in a different way like up until that point i just had not I had not had any real like run-ins with the law. I had always sort of been in this position of like being very comfortable in my white privilege and not kind of examining anything about my relationship to carceral state or anything like that. And um, it was a long, it's been a very long journey and it will continue to be a long journey since then. But it's like that, that definitely set me off on a direction. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, things, things aren't real until they get real. Um, yeah, until have, they're like on the news saying, you know, this man could face 25 years in prison. And you're like, huh. <laughs> yeah. That was on the news about you. Yeah, that's how my grandmother found out of it. She was watching oh, BBC man. and then my called up my mom and I was like, yeah, we got to talk about this. <laughs> oh, God. That's wild. Well, I'm glad it worked out as it did. Um, yes. I remember that project and that's, yeah, it's kind of wild, like not. Uh, yeah, not really a great look for for Apple. <laughs> like, Steve Jobs of- was like on his deathbed at the time, and yeah. I was like, "What is you know what is going on here?" It just doesn't. I, yeah. Anyway, I I think eventually they realized that if I made any bigger deal about it, then it would make them look bad, and I think that's part of why they pulled off or pulled yeah. back, particularly because the vulnerability is right there. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, they surely yeah. could. They could have taken some measures to make it that people can't install plugins or whatever on there. Yeah. Well, the next year, that's when they made it so that basically anything that you install on your computer, you have to have an administrator password to run. Mm-hmm. If you remember that, that was like mm-hmm. 2012. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think that was me, but. <laughs> yeah, but still, like. Well, they were probably trying to make an example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that no, could exactly. have been a bug bounty in another in a parallel universe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> rather than a bounty on your head. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> wild. Okay. Well, yeah. Um. So I guess I guess the the advent of our inviting you, even though it occurred to me that 
we could talk with you about a number of things, namely like machine learning and music, because mm. you're one of the few other people in the world who know a great deal about that and have actually published mm. extensively about it. And maybe we can even get there at some point once we get Ethereum out of the way. Sure, yeah. Um, but we is, can also always do another podcast. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll, find, we'll find a way. <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be a way. Is you have undertaken an insane project <laughs> over the past, like, I guess it would have been over the past, it feels like a year, but that in yeah. internet terms, that could have been like six months as far as my <laughs> recollection goes, to try and quantify the energy expense or the energy consumption of the Ethereum network. And I wonder, mm -hmm. given the fact that, you know, I was reading through your paper and there are so many particularities there that I had to really double check, like like double take on. And mm -hmm. I'm guessing the average listener is going to completely glaze over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to try and keep this within within the realms of like of uh, of lay language to some extent. But I wonder what was your initial motivation to to start uh, researching that? Yeah, so I, you know, I'd been thinking about GPU power usage for a bit, um, at least since maybe 2018 or 19, after this guy, Andre Karpathy, who's uh, one of the lead computer vision experts, machine learning experts at Tesla, um, working on the you know vision system for the cars. He was tweeting like when he was still a PhD student, uh, you know, when I ran this model over the weekend in my closet, um, it was equivalent to having you know, a thousand light bulbs on for, uh, an hour or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, he just sort of raised a, the smallest amount of awareness over the energy usage and the emissions of deep learning. And that's kind of set up a ticking time bomb in my head, which led to, um, I did this project in 2020 where I was making, um, like, a interface for researchers who are doing machine learning so that they can check like what are the real-time energy and emissions outputs of their um of their models as they're training it um so i I'd, I'd been thinking about kind of gpu power usage for a bit and then in at the end of 2020 i think it was like early december so really about a year ago um I was talking to Memo Acton, um, who mm -hmm. posted to Twitter basically a similar thing. Like, you know, he was trying to figure out for NFTs that people <clears throat> were uh, using Ethereum to mint um, what was the kind of corresponding energy responsibility or emissions responsibility. Um, kind of, I think, thinking along these same lines is like, okay, we know about machine learning using energy. What about, you know, Ethereum using GPUs in the same way? Um, and that basically set me down the path for Ethereum from talking with Memo. Um, but I don't know that I would have gone as deep as I did if it weren't for kind of early 2021 all the way through January to March. Um, There's this whole discourse that blew up that kind of started with Memo and a few other people um, asking, you know, it, what is this number really? And is it that bad? Uh, how can, can we compare this to anything? Um, and it was just so hard to find any numbers that anybody felt like they could agree on or that felt like they were really reliable. And um, I, you know, I started, <laughs> as I was looking into this, I started to get an idea for a project, which is still, I'm going to keep it secret for now, but it should hopefully be released in the next month or so. 
Um, and that's really that secret project is the reason that I've been doing this. I don't think I would just do this as like a conceptual gesture, even though it is like an interesting investigation. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of need these numbers for something else that I'm working yep. on, um, which is going to be about uh, the sort of market whole marketplace cost. I think something that um, I've had a lot of disagreement with Memo about is sort of like where you focus critique or criticism of um, high energy or high emission systems. And I think, um, you know, Memo was trying to build this tool uh, for artists to sort of reckon with their own footprint. Um, but of course, it got kind of abused to shame um, other artists. And I think that that's a that's a trap for talking about energy and emissions is talking about individuals when it's usually systems that are the bigger problems. I agree with that. I feel like we should at some point, maybe not right at, not at this point in the conversation, but we should talk about the general culture online about, yeah. about around this discourse and kind of what is um, productive and what's less productive. But let's focus first on your report because it is totally. so in depth. And I noticed that you cited um, Kumi, who mm -hmm. we also had on the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was just wondering a little bit about kind of like your methodology, because, you know, one thing that he talked about, especially in um, trying to calculate these very complex decentralized network systems, he was talking a lot about kind of like really small margins of error can then kind of turn into like a really huge <laughs> margin they of error. They can hurt a hurricane. Yeah, yeah they can hurricane. Totally. <clears throat> so I'm wondering what kind of, yeah, what was your methodology in this? And just a, a little tack onto that. Are you planning on having this peer reviewed? Did I see that that's yeah. up Yeah, for... good question. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not, I, I basically have had a kind of informal peer review with people like, John Kumi and a few other folks, um, but I I'm not planning on submitting it to a journal to get it kind of formally anonymously peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. It's a very long process, and I don't know that I'm going to get a lot or anybody's going to get a lot more out of that in this yeah, situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's better as a kind of set of publicly um, auditable numbers. Um, uh, kind of one of the biggest things that I was working on here was like uh, if I wanted to. Um, like one of the hardest parts of this project was actually figuring out what are the different emissions factors for electricity in different parts of the world, which means, you know, when you, you, when you plug, um, when you plug a computer into an outlet anywhere in the world, um, how much CO2 is going into the atmosphere for every hour that you run that computer. Um, and if I wanted to, I could have used this one source that is like really expensive, but they won't let me publish the numbers. Um, oh, wild. <laughs> which is like, if you want to pay, a th if you want to pay them a thousand bucks, they'll like give you all the data you need, but you're not allowed to tell anyone what the numbers are. I need to get um, into that business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. secret secrets. That's totally. crazy. Secrets. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. also this specific information is so important for the public to know. Exactly. That just like <laughs> well, what's really wild. So this company, it's, they're called the IEA, um, the, uh, oh, what does this stand for? international energy something international energy agency mm. so they're called the iea international energy agency and they what's really wild is not only are they basically holding this data hostage but also they're partially funded by taxpayer money around the world wow um, that is wild. yeah something it's only like a quarter of their of their revenue actually comes from 
people paying for this data, the majority of it comes from like private funding and government funding. So it's anyway, yeah, it's really a ridiculous situation. They also but, release estimates for things. I've seen them mentioned before yep. and like people trying to calculate how much energy video games. Well, exactly. they'll, they'll come out with their official statement. But then if you can't look under the hood and see how yeah. they're collecting their data, then it's kind of like unauditable. Yeah. Funded, exactly. Funded and by so, Activision. <laughs> <laughs> so that was part of what I was trying to do is like, in some ways it mattered less to me whether this was like peer reviewed and more whether it was auditable. Uh-huh. Um, so I tried to put more of my work into making sure that the numbers could actually be like checked by people instead of just saying, you know, I had the experts look and they agree. Um, so, yeah, but I, I mean, in terms of process and in terms of, um, you know, this thing, Kumi mentions about, um, you know, small numbers sort of hurricaning or blowing up. Um, I definitely ran into that. And it's basically because every different factor that's involved in estimating energy is like multiplicative. So if you think that, you know, every data center that runs an Ethereum farm has like a 1% overhead in energy costs, that's like a 1% overhead to your entire estimate. Or if you think it's a 20% overhead, that's a 20% overhead to your entire estimate. And for every term that's multiplicative in this way, Mm -hmm. like you just get more and more of that. Um, So that, and that data center overhead is actually a good example of one that's uh, kind of unknown in some ways. And there's pretty good guesses from other people that for most crypto mining proof of work farms, it's somewhere between one and 20%, but that's a huge range. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah. So I, Basically, my process was to break down um, what we can know into different measurable terms and then research each of those terms. Um, So the basic idea is to build from the bottom up. There's some things we know, like uh, the hash rate of the entire Ethereum network. Um, We have a really good understanding of what that number is. You know, how many hashes per second around the world, terahashes per second are being computed. And then... We also know for a given like bit of hardware, like a GPU, um, how much energy does it use to compute a specific number of hashes? Mm-hmm. And that's like the baseline. If you, can f- <clears throat> if you have those two things, then you've gotten already in like a really good zone. Yep. But then there's a bunch of other stuff too. Like when you've got a GPU plugged into a computer, the computer uses extra energy in addition to the GPU. Yep. Um, the power supply unit is not perfectly efficient at converting AC power to DC power, which is a big factor. Um, the grid loss, which is like when, you know, when there's a power plant that's like 20 miles from you, it actually like loses, pa- the energy loses power as it mm-hmm. gets to you. Yep. And that can be like five or 6% all the way up to like 12% in some countries, um, so all of these things have to be considered. Uh, and then also if you've got like a big farm, um, if someone's doing, you know, more than just like mining in their closet, then um, they've got to keep the lights on. They've got to keep the AC running, that kind of thing. So I basically just broke it down into those terms, which, you know, some of those are like on, in the numerator, you've got hash rate, hardware overhead, data center overhead, grid loss. And then some are like in the nom- in the denominator, like as they get, as those numbers get higher, then the estimate goes down. So like as the power supply efficiency goes higher, then the energy goes down as the um, hashing efficiency goes higher, the energy goes down. So yeah, I just looked into each of those and it was kind of a long journey. Um, but each of them gave me like a <laughs> few weeks of work. And then 
once I got to the end of that part of the journey, um, there's the next part, which is like, okay, now that you know, or have some estimate of the overall energy usage of the network, what are the emissions? And, um, that's a really complicated question. It's, uh, way more complicated than the energy use in a lot of ways, because emissions are produced by real physical power plants, um, that some miners are connected directly to, and some are sort of indirectly connected to over a grid. Um, and it depends where the miners are located. Uh, it's yeah. And every different energy mix is different in different countries and it varies throughout the year in places like China and yeah, so that I used a bunch of other tricks to kind of estimate where the Ethereum miners are located. An energy mix, just for those listening who aren't familiar with that, the energy mix is, for example, uh, in a certain location, the energy might be more renewable than others, right? Or exactly, it could be coal based. It could be in hydro Germany's based. case, it's very much coal based. Very much coal based. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Shutting shutting nuclear power plants, but <laughs> down by the month. Um, oh, green party. Yeah, uh, never mind. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, I I really have to take my hat off to you because, as you mentioned, you know, there was a lot of speculation and, and kind of tumult, let's put it uh, mm-hmm. lightly, um, on this issue. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, when we had uh, Dr. Kumi on, there was a lot of good research, a lot done, uh, a lot conducted by him specifically about the Bitcoin network. That's been like mm-hmm. something that's been covered quite well. And of course, there's debate ar- around that too, but... But I feel like everyone had, or at least following Kumi, you have a pretty good handle and a pretty trustworthy source there. Um, but with Ethereum, it was really it was really wi- wide open, right? You're like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the 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 Digiconomist uh, uh, estimates were about as close as we had toward that. I mean, was that was that the source that, for example, Memo was using when he was publishing earlier this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people were relying on the Digiconomist data um, from this guy, Alex DeVries, uh, Dutch researcher and economist. Um, he, you know, had a, he has a real-time Ethereum energy use and emissions estimate and tracker. He calls the Ethereum Emissions Index. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people latched onto that because it felt like it was, you know, real-time, up-to-date. Um, but in that uh, appearance, there's also a bunch of, there was a, there's a bunch of things behind that that are sort of obfuscated. You can't quite dig into it as easily. It's not like he just uploaded a spreadsheet um, or some code. He wrote a paper about Bitcoin and then said, I'm going to apply this to Ethereum. And, um, you know, I think uh, for a lot of the, I think for a lot of Ethereum's history, he was probably basically right about energy usage and emissions. Um, I think recently he may be overestimating and I actually just spoke with him yesterday and he thinks he also might be overestimating, but you'll have to get that from him. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's, you know, he is looking at it as a economic analysis where he says, okay, you know, we know what the overall revenue of all Ethereum miners is. We know they're making this much money throughout the world each day. And let's assume that they're spending 60% of their revenue on um, electricity and hardware. Mm-hmm. If they were to do that, then how much would they actually be using in terms of electricity? Um, and, you know, you can add a few more terms to that. Like, you know, it takes a year for new GPUs to come out. And uh, so if the hash rate is increasing, but 
it's happening too fast, then that means that they must be digging into an old GPU supply, which means that the hashing efficiency is going down. Yep. Um, so he has a lot of variables in there that are really carefully considered, um, but it's also just really hard to get this stuff right. And I think um, in some ways his work has represented a bit more of like an upper estimate. And what I've done here working from the bottom up, it represents a bit more of a lower estimate um, and probably the truth is somewhere in between. But it wasn't just his work. Um, there was also two other researchers. There was Krauss and Tolimat and uh, Gallersdorfer um, mm -hmm. who had done some estimates of Ethereum's energy use and uh, emissions and, uh, and also two, I think, um, Italian um, grad students, Mauro and Dono, they did some emissions estimates where they also looked into like the, the hardware, the, you know, how, what are the embodied emissions and the hardware that's produced? Cause with Ethereum, we're talking about like probably something like 10 million GPUs out there mining yep. Ethereum. Yep. Um, and there's about maybe 40 million AMD and NVIDIA and, uh, GPUs that are produced each year. So this is a lot of GPUs, uh, and mm -hmm. they considered that e-waste as part of the problem and found that if you add that in, that's another like 5% or so to the overall emissions. So there, it wasn't, it's not just me, there are some other folks and it's not just Digiconomist. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did find basically that some of these other estimates were, um, you know, I, I found in a general agreement with those estimates. Can I ask a quick question? What, where was he getting the 60% being spent on energy? That. So it's a really interesting story, and you'd have to, um, I, I don't understand it well enough to give a clear explanation, but basically what I do understand is that it's kind of a equilibrium. Like basically, if you look at the way that all of these different factors relate to each other um, in terms of production time and the, uh, the way that electricity prices change and um, overhead costs, uh, there's like a kind of equilibrium around 60% where if someone is trying to like minimize their risk going forward into the future, yep. they don't want to invest too much of their revenue into um, their operation, but also they don't want to invest too little so that they're not getting the maximum profit. Um, and it's funny, like it turns out actually, if you look at um, publicly owned companies, like there's some big Ethereum mining companies here in North America, like Hut8 and Hive and a few others, um, you can actually look at their, uh, you know, their um, publicly, uh, like their press press releases and things like that, and you'll find that it actually is close to sixty percent, somewhere between fifty five and sixty five percent. That's cool. So it's kind of like a general rule. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So beyond all this, I mean, what's really cool when I was reading it through is that it must have felt really good to come to come to a conclusion within the bands of what had already been debated. First off, that must have just been like a huge relief after the amount of work that you It was a huge relief. It was a huge relief. Because you're like kind of wandering in the dark and you're like, yeah. is this, does this number make any sense? And you're doing some things that are like genuinely new, like, you know, taking tons of benchmarks and trying to get a better kind of benchmark number over time. And I mean, yeah, I, I felt kind of like a, I was training myself as a neural network, like <laughs> I'm yeah. taking all these inputs in and like slowly getting towards some solution. And yeah, to have it agree was really satisfying. And then I guess the, the next question is on maybe a high level, you know, what did you find, right? Like um, in terms of the, 
the numbers like the electricity consumption and the emissions consumption, is there a way to summarize the numbers that you came to for someone who is maybe coming at this cold? Totally. Yeah. So it's, it, this is where it gets really complicated, actually. It's <laughs> actually, it's not even the, you know, the whole process of getting to this point takes a long time, but it's kind of like there's an answer sort of that you can get to, you know, I can say like right now, the Ethereum network is probably using somewhere around 2.73 gigawatts of power. And I can say, you know, the Ethereum network is emitting probably somewhere around 20 kilotons of CO2 a day. But to almost everybody, those numbers mean absolutely nothing. (laughs) And that's what makes this really complicated. So you've got to start making comparisons. And then there's this big question of what are appropriate comparisons to make? Um, So I can say, you know, the emissions from the Ethereum network could be compared to like the emissions of 500,000 people in the US. And that sounds like, wow, that's a lot, but maybe not too many. And then you also say like, or... 4.2 million people in India. And then you're like, oh, right. There's a huge disparity between emissions in the US versus a lot of other places. And then you have to remember that. Or if you talk about like the energy use, you can say, oh, it's like, you know, 20, you know, 20, um, yeah, like seven megatons a year, or sorry, um, 24 terawatt hours a year. That's like uh, similar to a whole country like Ecuador, 26 terawatts a year. Right. But then you also have to look again and say like, oh, but actually just Massachusetts by itself is 21 terawatts a year. So we have like some really it's really difficult to establish a sort of intuition baseline for what these numbers mean, because we're in the West and in countries like the U.S., like we're in a very different position from most of the world. And I think we have a hard time understanding how much energy we use and how many emissions we produce. Um, so comparisons make it difficult. Um, some of the only kind of objective comparisons you can make here are like relative to the overall percentage where you say, you know, you, Matt, you and I were just talking about this. That's probably around 0.1% of all electricity is being used for Ethereum, yep, which yep. again, maybe doesn't sound like a lot to some people and it does sound like a lot to other people. Totally. Well, that was the thing. I mean, it, it, it's funny that even even with all the, even with all the, the, the work done here, it does not yeah as you say it, it's really difficult to find an analog right like because i also yeah. remember you're saying somewhere in the paper you know you could perhaps like compare it by category and say something along the lines of like okay well this is in some ways a currency right what would be mm-hmm. you know and and of course i really hate that comparison well no well, well, yeah. well of course because <laughs> it, it, it's not really i mean that's the thing it's not really a currency right. in the classic sense purports to offer some utilities that currencies don't offer obviously you can build a lot more on top of the Ethereum network than you can on top of the dollar network from one angle. From another mm-hmm. angle, you could say that dollars facilitate all kind of other interact. It's was just it, very difficult to find a, a, a corollary. You, was it you who told me that it was also 0.1% for gaming, for the online gaming industry no, the, emissions? Well, well, this, this was the, the tricky part. Because that a little closer than like a it, No, no, it, it's more, it's way more for gaming. Um, it, okay. If, if, now, th- this is an estimate. Of course, I was also scrambling to try and find comparisons. <laughs> It's really difficult. Yeah, what'd you find? Well, I ended up basically getting to a point of like banging my head against the table and then just like Googling terawatts <laughs> per hour, you know what I mean? And then just right. like looking, scrolling down to find some kind of- And then you don't know if those actual estimates are- Yeah, like, I mean, there was one, ultimately there was one. So the re- the reason I, so I, I published a tweet that in retrospect, I regret because it did, it 
produce the exact opposite effect of its intended uh, publication. That Large, <laughs> la- yeah, that's just just don't use Twitter basically. But but yeah. but but I thought it, you know because because. If you go back to like the NFT tumult, right? Like the tumult, largely what ended up happening was you had camps in crypto that are very, you know, crypto pilled to various levels. Mm-hmm. And then camps you would say more in, let's say, the gamer community. Famously, uh, if you follow the memes, like furries really don't like NFTs, right? Right. <laughs> um, and generally speaking, the environmental issue is kind of like the, the, it's kind of the, 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 the dagger that's thrown uh, either mm-hmm. side. And so I was like, okay, well maybe there's good stats on gaming. And it, I've seen people trying to calculate the stats on fake fur for furry costumes. Oh yeah. No, it, it's just, it's, it, it, it's just, it's just absurd. Right. And so like, so, so for gaming, there was uh, let me, I actually did write this down. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so at UC Berkeley, they estimated that gaming in the U S alone. So this is limited to the U S no, in, mm. in the US alone accounts for 34 terawatt hours, right? So, mm. and 24 megatons a year CO2 emissions. And the argument there is that China is a significantly bigger market for gaming. So that was gaming mm. in the US alone is more than Ethereum globally. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes, significantly. Significantly uh, more. That being yeah. said, and, and so the, the estimate, there was one account that I can't verify as something as something uh, super trustworthy, but it was building off of those stats and it came to something around about like, it was something like 107 terawatts per hour a year annually uh, on gaming globally, extrapolated mm. from looking at the US as as an example. And they were, you know, but but so the, the argument there, again, it depends which way you cut it, right? Because it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. because gaming obviously is, is a utility, right? It's a, something that people enjoy. Um, it's a it's a it's a global phenomenon that brings meaning to people's lives, etc. That's all super valid, right? If you're coming from a defensive position on Ethereum, you could say, well, Ethereum provides arguably more uh, utility than gaming, right? That you can build all this stuff on mm-hmm. top of it. There's a fixed energy usage any point in time. Um, and I think some people would argue that neither is necessary for kind of like. Absolutely. Well, then, well, then so it gets really subjective. Like, what is what is necessary? You know, right. like, do you need that game? Should you, you know, what's right. wrong with board games? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but the, the point I was trying to come to ultimately is being like, even if even if you do come along and say that, okay, gaming globally, let's estimate is maybe four to five times more uh, energy uh, uh, hungry than mm-hmm. the Ethereum network at its current uh, measure, you know, you can then go to the uh, emissions factor, right? Where mm-hmm. off your numbers, the argument was that Ethereum is probably 0.01% of global CO2 emissions. Gaming by that estimate would be, you know, not that much more significant in terms of a global emissions crisis, right? And then I found other stats that were published by, well, let me just make sure I actually say who the source was. Yeah, energy, energy.gov, so like state government mm-hmm. agencies suggesting that, you know, LED, if we were to transition to LED lighting just in the US alone, we could save 569 terawatts per hour annually, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. 569 versus 24 for Ethereum's usage. Exactly. Right. So, so, so in estimate, like transitioning the United States over to LED light bulbs could pay for both the global gaming industry and this new propo- proposal for an internet for 10 years for every one year that, mm-hmm. that we change the light bulbs, right? So 
so this ultimately, I mean, what I'm saying is that like, this is such an incredible contribution, I think, in order to clarify things. And I don't think it's necessarily a black and white issue in the sense of saying it's, no. it must be, it must be frustrating to, to, that it doesn't resolve everything, but that's just the <laughs> truth, right? Cause, cause, yeah. because ultimately these things do then create more subjectivity for people to, to argue about. And so I've been talking too long, but, but I wanted to, to frame it in that way. Cause that's kind of where I'm at a little bit is that some of these things do feel a bit like a drop in the ocean in a broader context mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. clarity on them is, is, is just as equally important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, I tried to find some similar numbers in the past about, um, video games. And I, I think I saw some of the ones you're talking about. One, one of the numbers that really stuck out with me though, is that there's like some estimated something to be like two and a half billion people who play video games yeah, globally. Um, and I think right now for Ethereum, um, the number of daily active wallets is around like a million. Um, totally. yeah. We're, we're talking about like completely different scales. So yeah. even if there's some vague comparison, like same order of magnitude similarity between the emissions or the energy usage of the two, we're talking about com- many orders of magnitude difference in who's getting value out of it. So I, I looked at, I remember seeing something like it's, uh, you know, the entire history of everyone who's ever played Minecraft could be potentially responsible for like 600,000 tons of CO2. Um, but that's across like, for, besides being less than Ethereum's <laughs> emissions, that's also across like 200 million something players. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're talking about like 200 times as many people, but maybe only like 5% as many emissions. Totally. Um, so it's really difficult to make that comparison, I think, um, without looking at scale. And again, it comes to like this question of, well, you don't want to fall into this trap of sort of talking about it in a carbon footprint sense, because then you're talking about individual responsibility when it is a systemic problem. But we do also need some reference for talking about kind of scale of harm. And I think in some ways this comes back to a deeper question, which is like, um, I don't know, like, is it, is it okay to do harm when it's small proportional to the sort of benefit that we get from it? I, I would like to say no. Um, but it is practically like, if we look at it pragmatically, this is just something that we do every day. You know, we, we, we all know that we would like to not have plastics in the world, but like, instead of just not using them at all, we try and reduce our plastic use. You know, I think, um, reduction is, it's an important stopgap measure until we have a more circular sustainable system. I mean, yeah, if, I mean, if minting an NFT really burnt down a forest, no one would do it. Right. And it doesn't, (laughs) if it, even if it like burnt down a tree, like, probably people wouldn't do it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it doesn't, it's, it's like on that, it's getting close to that scale, but I mean, we're or sorry, the scale is getting similar, but it's still not that. And um, I think at some point we just have to decide as a, as a, as humanity, like, you know, when have we borrowed too much from the future and you can no longer justify the harms you are doing. Um, and who are we to tell other people about, you know, to, to follow those guidelines? That's really difficult. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think energy use in general is not really ethical unless it's part of a circular economy, which is really hard to achieve. So we just need to be careful and minimize our impacts and look at kind of the scale of, of the damage relative to the value that we get out of it. Um, and I like I was saying, with something like video games, um, it, it seems pretty clear to me that what we're getting out of it is 
uh, at a completely different scale than something like Ethereum. Uh, but yeah, that's obviously long discussion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that human activity in general is energy expensive, like basically everything that we do. Um, and so it's kind of a question of what's worth it and who gets to decide what's worth it or not. And pers- from my perspective, I feel like experimenting with a new um, version of the internet is worth is worth that personally, um, mm. especially when seen um, kind of when I can see the the scale of the numbers that we're talking about here, and then maybe thinking about like if if the ultimate goal is harm reduction, where mm-hmm. could that energy our human <laughs> our, our 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 own human uh, our <laughs> own human energy be yeah. focused um, to have the biggest impact there? Yeah, we got to get Travis in here. He can have something to say about human energy. <laughs> well, um, it's, a, it's an interesting argument too because I I wonder you know. This, I mean, we've had Dr. Kumi on, we had Xeon Lights on to, to have a long, I think, really cool discussion on nuclear, which is a, a whole other question mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that frames that frames responsibility in a very different way, right? Because if I, if I can like reduce her argument down, she, she, if you're familiar with her, she was uh, uh, the spoke, one of the spokespeople for Extinction Rebellion. And then she, she, she kind of left that organization and then is now started kind of a, a pro nuclear advocacy uh, uh, group, and and one of her arguments ultimately was, which I don't I don't think you fall on this camp, but was to mm. say you know it's going to take a lot of energy for us to to create cleaner energy, right? Uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the developing world, right? That, that, and that's kind of one thing that is uh, it's counterintuitive, but it's just kind of true, right? That mm-hmm. like modernization ultimately takes a lot of energy, and you need to kind of raise the standard of living in many places in order to then start having conversations about cleaner energy, lest we mm-hmm. kind of prescribe, right? Like, I mean, lest we kind of right, uh, right. jump in and and do things for people, which generally with the democratic ideal generally doesn't fly very well. Right? I think her, her advocacy is for not necessarily having a, 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 to have to entirely scale back energy usage, but to rather put our human energy towards um, carbon neutral energy sources. Yes. Mm. Okay. So this is where I was going with it. Well, I think it's, it's really, like a degrowther yeah, versus growth right. narrative. What I think is really cool about what you did by publishing these, these stats though, and is something that I think would be really positive is just as in a way, you know, we've seen movements um, around the, the concept of, let's say, effective altruism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, for those who are not familiar with what that is, it's basically like a lot of nerds who, <laughs> some very famous nerds who they are think like- they can do it better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They think they can do it better. And, and they're basically saying, okay, well, a lot of like giving, a lot a lot of well, it's uh, philanthropy- about, It's about how inefficient a lot of the kind of- A lot of philanthropy, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, for example, so their proposal in a way is saying- um, you know, uh, actually the best value you could get for your dollar, the best kind of, the most impact you could get for your dollar is to buy, for example, a mosquito net, that that would actually, hmm. under their ethical rubric, would reduce the most harm per dollar versus giving to this organization over here who, you know, someone might argue was kind of bloated. Um, like Oxfam that only gives away like 5% of what they ingest or something. Right. For example, which, which would be their argument. Uh, right. And I, again, I have to like be, I have to be somewhat agnostic on this stuff because I am not an expert on this. Neither right? am I. I, might and just, so I was the, just making up that number. But, but that, is, but that <laughs> is the argument, right? Um, and what's kind of cool about this, I think, is that, you know, I think where we can all agree is that one of the great benefits to independent researchers such as yourself publishing open information like this and it not being paywalled behind IEA or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> is that you could one could hope to 
to to see a scenario in which effective environmentalism could spawn, right? That mm-hmm. having access to those figures, even though I doubt that we would ever get to one kind of easy narrative, right? Like mm-hmm. I would be skeptical of one easy narrative that, but get it, getting having those figures available would allow for you to kind of construct uh, construct a vision of, of of how we might reduce harm if that is indeed what's happening, right? Because uh, yeah, so 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 I think initiatives like this are like incredibly important in order to just kind of clarify at least to produce like a shelling point of like okay we all know what we're talking about now mm-hmm. let's all come up with like our particular takes or our particular uh uh feelings on you know what the just if how justified this is um and and where things are going mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah holly i i really resonate with your suggestion of like basically engaging with experimentation in the hope for some kind of better future um and being open to like making if I'm understanding right, like making mistakes and sometimes even causing harm in the process. Like if you are sort of trying to get to something that makes more sense for everybody. Um, But it's also really hard for me, like to understand whether this makes sense in this specific case when there are other options available with Ethereum and with proof of work in general. It's like, there are these other options, Matt, I know you've been kind of proponent of Solana and some other uh, blockchains that are not proof of work. And um, so it's harder for me, I think, when there's a clear alternative to be supportive of harmful experimentation, even when the harm is small. Um, and I think it's hard to say, it is really hard to say whether these harms are small or large, because it does matter how you compare and whether how you talk about the future. Um, but I think when there's another option, it's it's harder for me to justify. That makes sense. I mean, I feel like the the proof of work scenario. I mean, this is again opening up a whole kind of hornet's nest of of potential uh, of potential <laughs> debate points, right? Because like there are definitely people we're trying to bring someone on actually just to entertain the argument that I've definitely met very clever people who argue that in the absence of proof of work, the whole hmm. experiment is pointless. Um, Mm -hmm. right. Because this is a difficult thing to kind of go into, but there are, for example, like the, the, the process of securing a blockchain through proof of work, decentralizing it through the ability of different people to go and, you know, uh, uh, run their own nodes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Their argument in a sense is that that's kind of the, the point of having this kind of autonomous network that is outside of, let's say state control or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, proof of stake in a sense, you know, for many of the the kind of proof of work maximalists would represent more waste, right? Because ultimately then you're kind of just, you're reinventing the wheel with some utilities involved, but ultimately if it doesn't secure things any better or doesn't decentralize things any more than current data center um, mm-hmm. uh, politics, etc. That's not my position. All the present day discussions of cryptocurrencies are really backed in some um, basic ideas from economics and monetary theory that no one ever really talks about and sort of just like takes for granted. Like the idea that, you know, you've got to have something backing a currency like gold or like uh, electricity proof of work. Um, like this is not uh, sort of set in stone. We, we haven't like agreed as a planet that this is necessarily how money has to work. This is like one vision, which sort of comes from like a crypto anarchist, crypto libertarian like Hayek influenced, uh, you know, 
position and money can be other things. It's been many other things throughout history and we can make it other things if we want it to be. Um, it doesn't have to be backed by anything. It can be something that is connected to, you know, our, it can be connected to the state. It can be connected to some idea of like individual, um, individual responsibility or like respect for other people. Like this is something that can be self-issued. Like there's, other options here. And I think sometimes the crypto discussion doesn't really pull the, um, it doesn't really pull the curtain back quite far enough. Um, so I, I get why some people would say, you know, you can't have proof of stake without proof of work, but I, I think that that's actually a little bit of a narrow, um, it's a little bit of tunnel vision that's sort of, um, forcing that position. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It is. And that's definitely like on the kind of gold bug end of, uh, on the kind of cold punk end, yeah. end, end of in, of in interpretations. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I've, I've definitely had conversations with with bright people who definitely fall in, I would say, the libertarian camp who argue that, you know, for example, Bitcoin doesn't use enough energy, right? The, right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which is... They're the people who like want to surround the sun with something that like captures all of the energy so that we don't see the sun anymore. It just like <laughs> transmits the energy directly to us. It would be really lovely to have a long conversation with somebody who, for example, I, I do know of people from the Bitcoin community who I know are smart. I don't know their priors mm -hmm. or their kind of their aspirations, but for example, they look at things like uh, rejected energy, right? They mm -hmm. look at things like uh, flared gas and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And there's many people who do come forward and say, you know, in, in a climate where I shouldn't use the word climate in a, in a, in a discourse, <laughs> in a discourse that can often be so charged, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a very difficult uh, conversation to bring forward, right? I, I, mean, I found, for example, that like, conversations about proof of stake oftentimes people just kind of like throw it around because it's like the most acceptable thing to say right you're like right. we won't have to have this conversation in in maybe yeah, 18 exactly. months or two years like please make it go away let's just uh. say proof of stake right and you're like but then you've got another another side who are like hey like you know like two-thirds of energy produced in xyz is rejected right like we we sure. have incredibly inefficient systems and you know and there are clever people coming from the bitcoin camp who are saying well look like we can bring efficiencies through a proof of work system. Now, I'd have to like hear the full argument and be able to kind of poke at it to mm -hmm. to to see whether I, I thought there were any legs there. But uh, yeah, but yeah. it's it's a it but it's a, a complicated matter, right? Like it is. It, yeah, it really is. It's and it's it's definitely not something that can be reduced to like a tweet. And I think that's yeah. part of what has done this discourse a disservice. Um, I mean, you do have places like you know Yunnan in in South China where uh, you know, at the, in the middle of, I think 2018 and the middle of the wet season, um, you know, they had this massive surplus of hydropower, something like 10 gigawatts. And remember like the entire Ethereum network is probably somewhere around like two or three gigawatts today. And at the time it was much lower, maybe one gigawatt. Um, so you could have in theory, like moved 10 copies of the Ethereum network to Yunnan and just powered it. And it wouldn't have caused any extra, stress on the grid in theory. But what has happened is that China has started building and is recently finishing high voltage lines that connect these energy abundant regions to um, kind of metro regions in the east that uh, need that power um, and they're putting it to work. And then in the process, they've kicked out all the miners because they know that if they don't kick them out, then it's going to create competition between their new you know, renewable power for the metro regions and um, 
the mining community. So uh, it's and the digital renminbi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, and that <laughs> to make it another. even more complicated. <laughs> yeah. So it is really complicated. You can't you can't reduce it to a tweet. I mean, the stranded energy and like another one that comes up a lot is like grid balancing. The idea that like miners could you know in a place where the electricity is deregulated, like in Texas. Um, you know, maybe you could have some miners that like shut off their grids part of the time when the energy price is going up. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm very suspicious of these kind of stranded energy and energy like grid balancing arguments. I I've done some research on the stranded energy stuff and it's like in the U S we have a like 98% efficiency requirement on gas flaring. Um, so it's already basically required to like have nearly the same efficiency as gas combustion, which is used for, um, you know, when you're producing electricity from natural gas, uh, it's, it's so I'm not sure how much like you actually gain in terms of emissions reductions from stranded energy. And in terms of the grid balancing thing, like if you look at the price of electricity in places where the price is like having a little bit of a crisis, like in Texas, um, it never it it very rarely gets to a point where it is profitable for miners to shut down their rigs yeah. um which means that if the local energy company starts saying like okay we're only going to let you stay here if you let us tell us when to shut your rigs down there's no way any miner is going to accept that they're going to go somewhere with more consistent cheap energy because there's a lot of other options available so i'm i'm not convinced but it is complicated I want to go back to something you said before where you were saying that you feel like even experimenting with Ethereum causes some harm. And actually, mm. I find that super alienating personally mm. as someone who is a touring musician who mm -hmm. does ML research. I feel like every aspect of my life uses energy, especially, Absolutely. you know, living in the West. So yeah. where how do we make these kind of moral calculations for what mm -hmm. energy is worth using and what isn't, especially when we see the kind of scale that we're talking about here. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great, right? And to, to, preface the, to preface that a little bit, when we first started talking about this issue, that was kind of like the, the, the real kind of, that was the real meat of the argument in a sense, yeah. right? Because what's unique in a sense to a, uh, a proof-of-work network, right, like an Ethereum, is that this might not be known to most people, but right, there is kind of like a, there's a fixed energy use for the network at any one moment in time, right? So the argument, unlike, let's say, many things where, you know, okay, I buy a computer, right? I plug the computer into the wall, all of a sudden, I'm adding a really marginal uh, amount of burden on the global energy network, right? Um, unlike that, in a sense, the you know, when you participate in a network like Ethereum, you know, you sending that transaction didn't add a marginal extra bit of energy to the system. Right. However, to make it even more complicated, you know, of course, when a million people do, there's an incentive for more miners to join the network, right? So, so, mm -hmm. so you can argue both sides of it. It's really complicated. But, but because you can argue both sides of it, really that like philosophical conversation of like figuring out how to meter out like meet at responsibility becomes really crucial. Like that philosophical distinction becomes really important. So I just wanted to say that in the, in the broader context. Yeah, totally. And so, 
Holly, I just I just want to be super clear. Um, when I'm talking about experimenting, um, I'm really saying you personally are the problem, Holly. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no. I, it, when I I really mean like I I want to keep the focus on institutions and away from individuals. I, I am not here to judge anybody as an individual, as an artist. I, I have lots of friends, and I would like to keep them my friends that are experimenting <laughs> with proof of work and many other. Um, you know, kind of blockchains and crypto tech. Um, I, I'm not here to tell anyone that like, you know, you were involved in, you were personally involved in a harmful system and it's your fault that that system exists. Um, I am concerned about in kind of experimentation in this infrastructure level and what organizations like Ethereum Foundation do, but also organizations like OpenSea or Foundation. I mean, OpenSea has been interesting to watch because they're basically at this moment gobbling up something like 90 plus percent of all NFT activity yep. um, on the Ethereum L1. Uh, and yet they have also made a lot of improvements in terms of like um, sort of escaping from the proof of work ecosystem a little bit yep. um, by adding other blockchains. Whereas you have other... Uh, marketplaces like Foundation that have decided to reject. They've actually gone through, you know, they went through XDAI for a little bit. They stepped off of Ethereum and then they went back to Ethereum. Yep. And that is a sort of infrastructure level experimentation that I'm talking about that I feel is uh, needs to be more seriously considered as um, kind of participant in harm. I think at this individual level, like, yes, everything we do uses energy there's emissions involved, like touring, it's ridiculous, flying, you know, I am, I am not pure, I'm not arguing for my purity. Um, but I don't think that we should be putting it on each other and on ourselves to bear the weight of this. Like, of course, we have some, um, we have some responsibility for it, we are participants, and we need to be kind of as responsible as we can and understand that. But um, we're not where we should, like, each other is not where we should be focusing our, our attack here. So, um, yeah, I, I'm more concerned like every day that the Ethereum foundation, like considers some new feature that will potentially delay proof of stake. That is a real harm, like infrastructure level harm. Um, and that's what I'm more concerned about. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think for a lot of artists, they're working with Ethereum because that's where the actual, well, you know, yeah, most the of buyers, yeah. that's where the market is. But I guess what, what I'm kind of trying to get at is, why has this conversation exploded, especially in Twitter, in the way that it that it has? And this this really um, really focused scrutiny on this particular mm. aspect of our um, uh, of our artwork creating emissions, because you know so much, so many, so much of my art practice, so much of my friends' art practice. I have friends in the fashion industry, mm -hmm. you know. These are these are all very kind of like energy intensive things that are that one can argue whether or not are kind of essential for human life and kind of like mm -hmm. human thriving. And so my question is, why are we focusing so much on Ethereum yeah, well, on the kind of broader scale of of this issue? I, th I think it's a it's a valid question. Yeah, 100 percent. I, I think um, I have a suspicion, which is that it's connected to how knowable uh, these numbers are for uh -huh, yeah. cryptocurrencies and that we've really gravitated towards something that we can actually, you know, look at a blockchain and, you know, make some estimates and, 
there's also some really like scary pictures that come out every now and then of like big mining farms. Um, <laughs> and I think like all of these things work together to like, kind of like rile us up emotionally, but also feel like some kind of intellectual certainty. I mean, if you talk to people like Kumi about um, energy estimates in other domains, like, you know, sure, it looks sketchy to have an energy estimate for Ethereum that's like plus minus 50% accuracy. But if you look anywhere else, it's like plus minus two, three orders of magnitude. Yeah. Um, and you're like looking for the any bound that you can to make an estimate. So um, I think part of it is the sort of certainty and that makes people feel kind of uh, like, yeah, there's some intellectual superiority thing happening. I think it's also in some ways a proxy for people being upset about this new kind of system in general. Mm. And it's a it's a kind of it's something that people can latch on to. Yeah, I mean, I would I would I would agree with that. I think that like it's of course, it also came in the middle of a pandemic, right, yep. where, you know, the one thing I mean, this is one thing I was thinking about earlier where I'm like, you know, I think you're totally right with the numbers being somewhat calculable and somewhat mm -hmm. you want to say local but like there's something to be said for the transparency of blockchains generally as a utility and also as something that drives people crazy right like we've had this argument on this podcast a few times related to payments right artists i'll actually like chat you out again on this i mean you you were responsible um i, I can't remember if you were partly or solely responsible uh, oh, who pays artists yeah exactly exactly yeah. a few years ago for for putting out spreadsheets on, you know, uh, uh, it was a, a really cool project where the whole idea was, you know, publishing that you got paid fifty dollars for, <laughs> for a <career. laughs> but but of course there, there's something really useful to having that information out there, right? And like we've definitely encountered many circumstances we're going through on at the moment where something's come through and mm -hmm. we're like, I don't fucking know what to charge, you know, like I, like you you have no idea, right? And so there's something mm -hmm. about those numbers being transparent that that on the one hand is is positive but on the other hand of course within the crypto ecosystem it's it's like right in front of your face right like yeah who's making money who's exactly. not making money in a time where things are really challenging they're really uncertain for everybody to different degrees um and on top of that right you know this was the thing i got from speaking to dr kumi now the impression i got from him as someone who is perhaps you know one of the world's experts in uh, the the scaling of technologies and their potential uh, you know energy impact, the impression I got from him was, you know, this is it's energy expensive, but in the broader scheme of things, I don't lose sleep over it. However, ultimately, the burden of proof is on the crypto community to demonstrate that this is really worth it. You know, because if right. it does, even though he, I, I suspect he would be in the camp of saying that. It's most likely not going to scale to consume seventy percent of the world's energy, or you <laughs> right. know, right? Whatever shit you read in the newspaper, but like, yeah. but but the one thing that occurred to me was I was like, yeah, I mean, like, coming at this very generously, the only circles where I've seen this really turn into like a bloodthirsty issue have been <laughs> circles whereby there is a rivalrousness going on, right? There is a rivalrousness that has been exposed by, for better and worse. Um, this thing being dropped at this particular time and all of a sudden money being inserted into an equation where in some cases it's being inserted for the first time, right? In the cases yeah. of, of, I mean, you could argue, let's say like generative art, right? All of a sudden there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of money 
there that wasn't really there before. And some people are getting it and some people aren't getting it, right? Or in the cases of like, let's say something like music where most professionals know that money's always been there, but you just, now you're seeing right. it, right? And so or, now- Or a game designer with a monopoly on sellable assets that doesn't like mm-hmm. the idea of kind of tradable, interoperable assets. Totally. And of course, mm-hmm. and, and of course that, that argument should not be reduced to a, the only reason people care about this is because they're salty, right? <laughs> it could be confused for that argument, but that's not the argument. The, ar- the argument ultimately is the places where this inspires the most feverish, mm-hmm. uh, impassioned debate ultimately are places where there is a rivalrousness occurring and there is a, you know, a feeling in a sense that there is a, maybe a changing of guard or a, or a, you know, or a feeling of getting left behind, which I think is a very legitimate concern, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so I wonder, yeah, I mean, I've maybe, I've maybe primed that, uh, primed that question too hard, (laughs) but, 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 but I, but I wonder, yeah, like where, where, what was your read on it from, from where you were coming from? Like, what was your read on, on why this was inflaming so much passion? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're, I think you're really on top of it, both of you. I, I feel like, um, yeah, one of the things I, I feel like we haven't talked about enough online is, and sort of in this discourse in general has been just about our feelings. I'm act, I yeah. actually got, uh, I'm working on a workshop right now, which is going to be a crypto group therapy session. Hey. Um, <laughs> so we can talk about our feelings a little more. I have um, a couple crypto group therapy telegram chats. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. We're going to, we're actually going to try and find a therapist who can like walk us through some things and, see if we can talk about how we feel. And I, I think part of um, what we would get to if we talked about our feelings a little more is we'd probably realize like how closely this is connected to class. And that's yep. the thing that no one talks about. And I think maybe that rivalrousness you're, you're mentioning, I mean, and maybe another way to understand that is it's just wealth inequality. Like it's massively increased in the last few years yep. with mm-hmm. the pandemic. I mean, this is the first time in my life I've had, I have friends who sort of started from the same place. If, economically and some of them are applying for food stamps for the first time and mm-hmm. others have become multimillionaires yeah and absolutely. that is huge like there's nothing like there's no way for that to happen without having a massive impact on how people feel yep. about each other um i think it's also connected to this idea of like um revenge capitalism in some way i think mac it's max haven that talks about this um saying that like uh, you know, we sort of have felt used and abused for a long time by capitalism, and it's kind of become impossible for us to imagine uh, anything but just being capitalists to other people yep. and sort of getting our share out of it. And maybe this is like our opportunity. So a lot of people have flocked to it. And we see that not just with crypto or with NFTs, but maybe also with like the uh, GameStop and AMC kind of stock. Yeah, uh, movement. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, I think there's something there. I think that there's a lot of feelings we've had. <laughs> there's a lot of feelings we've all got that are connected to um, class inequality and and wealth inequality um, that we just haven't really like figured out how to work through together. I mean, my like my my main feeling about NFTs is that whenever I see like people succeeding or people being kind of frustrated with each other about succeeding um it just reminds me like how poor of a job we've done in building other kinds of support networks um like if we had an actual yeah i don't know i would love to see a study that goes through and 
looks at artists who have come from different kinds of economic models and different with different degrees of like government support um, to see how much they've engaged with crypto. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a correlation there. Um, I would expect that the people who feel least supported have come to rely on, you know, anything that might even look vaguely um, hopeful. Yeah, I feel like I saw a tweet the other day that said crypto's like um, revenge of the millennials on the boomers for their for their <laughs> yeah. rug pull because the, the boomers kind of <laughs> did their own rug pull with the yeah yeah. But I feel like Web three is this weird kind of unholy marriage or, or mm. kind of like strange bedfellows, I guess you can call it, of like you know anarcho capitalist like mm-hmm. you know Wall Street people, whatever. And also people who are just like, I feel like if you contribute to a platform, you should have some partial ownership of that platform. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like, it's a very, it's almost difficult to talk about crypto or web three as, as one thing, because there's so many competing ideologies. Yeah, exactly. And we we actually just had, we published today a conversation with Ali Breland, who wrote a great piece for, um, for Mother Jones specifically on that of, of, of Mm. suggesting that, you know, like, analyzing crypto participants or the meme stock participants from the angle of class. I think that is absolutely uh, important mm-hmm. here, right? Because the, what I appreciate about that piece is it was, it was very non-judgmental and it was very much saying, look, like you've, you've had a complete breakdown in, in the narrative of what it means to kind of get ahead, at least in the United States. Right. And mm-hmm. there's a pandemic where, I mean, this was something that that frustrated me greatly. Not that I'm like a financial expert or anything, but I'm like, whoa, like everyone's sitting at home and there's a minority of people getting ludicrously rich from the stock market. Like, where does this correlate? I could understand like Amazon stock or whatever, you know, because they're like, okay, well, Amazon's seeing a bit of a bump, Discord, Zoom. Okay, I can kind of see that. But it's like, no, 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 this is just like the Fed printed a bunch of money and it went to a very small group of people, right? And like trying to parse that is is really complicated and is often not kind of analyzed from this kind of uh, from this class perspective. And I mean, I can say, but while that was happening, it's like people were tearing themselves apart on Twitter for mm. absolutely. And and one could question the the kind of efficacy of that, mm-hmm. I, I guess. But but in terms of sentiment and feeling, it, it's completely understood understandable, right? I mean, like on the issue of class, this is, I came to crypto through participating in like platform co-op discussions, like open source discussions. This would have been around the mid, Mm -hmm. mid of the last kind of decade. Right. And like my whole point was being like, look, we're getting shafted here. Like there, there has to be a better way. Right. And it's like, (laughs) so, so I came to it with like a small group of like of nerds who were not necessarily like like really on the fringes of that crypto conversation um still to some extent on the fringes of of that crypto conversation very much seeing this as a class matter right in a way uh, the 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 experience of the past year to talk about feelings has been really devastating Mm. because i can see arguments on both sides where on the one hand like the greater narrative about what this infrastructure might represent has been completely warped to a point whereby when I encounter most people and talk to them about purported benefits of these networks, I don't recognize the thing, the virtues that they tell me, right? Like Mm -hmm. I don't recognize them. And yet on the other side, coming at it very much with, with a class focus, I also can't get down with a, 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 a climate of, let's say judgment for people participating in ways to get by who have seen every other avenue to get by eviscerated, you know? And I think, and I think to speak to your point, which I think is, is a really good one, right? The, the, the lack of institutional support that we got to see 
at the advent of the pandemic, right? We got to see like all of a sudden you can't fly anymore. So you start realizing that actually your IP doesn't mean shit, right? Like right. if you're a musician, like selling records doesn't really mean that much yeah, anymore. Yeah, we lost right? all like, of our shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, totally. It was, it was, it was eviscerated. And, and then at the same time, you also see how those institutions, let's say like bigger art institutions or, uh, or whatnot. Like I've had many conversations with professional artists recently, very, very concerned taking like a longer time horizon view of things being like, does Canon mean anything anymore? I feel like right. Schumann spoke to this really nicely on our podcast that we recorded with him several months ago. What, what did he say? He was talking about the kind of failure of institutions during COVID. Mm. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, the, the pivot of like a Sotheby's to the NFT market or whatever, or the... <laughs> But 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 seeing that as part of, in a sense, like a longer slide that has been coming for about 10 years of mm-hmm. like very populist driven by Instagram or whatever it might mean. Felt like COVID just like sped everything up. COVID sped oh. everything up, gave everyone time to look at it. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> and in that process, you see well, all these kind of institutional hallmarks that in a way you've, you know, for people around about our age, like I grew up kind of revering and wanting to participate in how ultimately at the end of the day no they will go with the sneaker show you know what i mean (laughs) like like as much as you think as much as you would like to think that canon matters actually you know the 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 older legacy galleries are closing and the new ones that are sticking around are doing sneaker shows right like right Right. So sorry to rat about this, but 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 just to Matt just hates sneakers. <laughs> no, no, but, but, yeah. and, it's fine. And, and that means a lot to a lot of people. That's chill. Like it's fine. I don't want to come yeah. across like a granddad or whatever. I'm just but kidding. But you got to keep your sneaker friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 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 it does. But 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 it does. I think when you speak about feelings, it does speak to just how complicated this is, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if we're going to talk about like feelings in class, I think a big part of the thing that feels like betrayal here is like, where's the class solidarity? I mean, I've, the closest thing I've seen is maybe like Kalani Nicole organizing with uh, Transfer Gallery, yep. this Pieces of Me exhibition where 30% of the sales are redistributed to the entire list of artists. Like that's solidarity. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And I that is a very uncommon model. Uh, maybe it's the only time I've seen that at all in this space. You know, what, uh, like the next, maybe the next closest thing would be like some emphasis on the idea of splits or like splitting, splitting income, like, okay, kind of, but that's not, that's just about sort of collaboration. That's not about class. That's something different. Um, But so there are, there's a little bit in that direction, but this is such a small part of what's happening. It's really like everyone for themselves kind of thing. I mean, from a bigger perspective here Um, and yeah, I just don't right now I don't see mechanisms for this being for for there being class solidarity in this space and I think that's what a lot of people are feeling from the outside is like, well, you know, good for you, you got yours, but what does that mean for me? I don't know if I agree that it's really everyone for themselves. I feel like it's still very new and I don't want to be an apologist like it's new, it's still formulating, <laughs> but it, yeah, it yeah. really is very new and, and like yeah. I, I feel like crews are still forming up and I have seen people support each other in different ways. I, I do think That's true. the trend the like um the undeniable uh, visibility of splits, I think it, you know, 
it's a lot to expect it to kind of like immediately like solve class issues, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, okay. You're like, we can't just do this overnight? I no, mean, come on, is this technology can't. or not? <laughs> but, but it's like, okay, maybe the, you know, the art world is like hideously uh, untransparent, opaque totally. <laughs> with that kind of thing. So see, being able to even just kind of like peel back that one layer and be like, look, this is the kind of like collab notebook that I was working with. So I'm going to give those creators this percentage and like kind of write that into a contract. That's, it's not going to solve everything, but it's a baby step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, where I will say I also share a criticism is that if I go back to like 2016 or whatever, you know, some of the first experiments, it was, it was really spiriting to me to see such a great emphasis on splits right on on kind of like acknowledging labor behind a project and it was somewhat dispiriting seeing like around the nft boom how deprecated that aspect of the conversation went right and i mean this speaks mm-hmm. a little bit to why we call this podcast interdependence right mm-hmm. it's like my at least my whole like uh and like uh, uh inspiration to be involved in any of this was saying okay well you now have you know, uh, uh, transparent attribution, hopefully transparent remuneration. Hopefully these can be tools fundamentally to, to, to shift the balance toward an acknowledgement of more people. And then of course, mm-hmm. when, when tested in, in practice, this is also what makes it really complicated. I mean, another really complicated angle to all this is that that very transparency and crewing up with the intervention or with the kind of introduction of funds all of a sudden can be read from very different angles, both legitimately, right? Like one, mm. one angle you can say, well, yeah, like take a friends with benefits, for example, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a, is a project I, I have a, a, a very positive uh, interpretation of, but from a, from a negative angle, you can say, well, look, yeah, I mean, it's just a group of people getting theirs, right? right. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. and actually the benefit, you and know, it's who you know, and who you exactly. with, and it's a from, a, from a more critical angle, you could say, well, actually the, the, in, the introduction of funds and the introduction of supporting each other in this sense is also from a critical angle, like pumping your bags, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> right. the, Right, that 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 all of a sudden you could read that purely from a monetary perspective and have a point, right? One hundred percent. Um, and and so the difficult part you get to there is that you know, like, yeah, again, this comes down to a philosophical question of like, is it possible to interact in the world that we have to interact with from a purely generous and and, and <laughs> beneficial and beneficial perspective when ultimately everything is marketized when when ultimately even for example, and I I wouldn't suggest this of anyone that you mentioned, but like when even the gest- of doing good right. can increase the value of something, right? That mm. right. That was the saying in San Francisco. It's good to be good. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, like so, it's lucrative to be good. Yeah. So, so, right. so in a way, it is kind of an, an inescapable matrix of different competing <laughs> incentives, right? Where like, where it's like, how do you just make the pure gesture? Okay. Let me just. Can I just say something to kind of <laughs> yeah, like maybe it. form formulate this? That like, I feel like when this within this discussion, I find myself having to defend the very. Um, the very notion of experimenting in this space that I don't mm. ever get to get to that next point to where mm. we're actually kind of breaking apart what aspects are good and what aspects are bad. And I think because so many people have been turned off from joining the conversation because of the climate conversation and, and mm-hmm. some of the the strange notions of digital scarcity and things like this, that that then you find a, um, a lot of those voices who I think would add a lot to the conversation and the nuance, the things that I would like to criticize too. And like, there's a lot of 
hideous stuff in this space that I want to make fun of too. But I find myself <laughs> having to defend the very notion totally. of even it, like using it at all that I don't even get to get there. Yeah. Speak about yeah, therapy well, sessions. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're getting there. This is a preview. Yeah. I mean, I'll let me come over to your side a little bit for a second here and say, you know, two things. One is to your point, Holly, a minute ago about, you know, there being some kind of mutual support. I was watching the Hicket Nunk scene on mm-hmm. Tezos for a while, and I was really surprised by how efficiently so many artists were able to basically quickly redistribute uh, cash between each other. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that is, you know, a very, di- that was a very different vibe than what I was seeing happening on a lot of the Ethereum backed platforms that were mm-hmm. definitely more everyone for themselves. Um, so there, you know, it, it is not inherent to crypto that it's everybody for themselves. There are some platforms where there is a bit more of a communal environment, or at least there, there was for a bit when it was smaller. I don't think that it's, you know, the same way now. Um, another thing I'll add is like, I'm not against decentralization. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of experimentation that actually preceded the current iteration of Web3 that was, mm-hmm. you know, when it was still D-Web. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of that was really interesting to me. And it felt like, you know, there was a there was a future there. And I still follow people who are like working on, you know, decentralized web for uh, like in Aotearoa and New Zealand, like trying to store local histories and like knowledge it, um, in a decentralized way uh, using, you know, some of this pre Web3 tech um there's like there's real work that's still happening in that space. And I actually suspect that some of that will be the thing that outlives mm-hmm. all of this. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there's some digital currency in the future. Um, but I don't know that all of the things that we expect Web3 to do right now on top of smart contracts and digital currency, I don't know if that's the way it's going to survive. I wouldn't be surprised if it's through some other mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I... I I love experimentation. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And um, I think I'm just trying to, you know, some of those mistakes are things that I could have seen coming. And uh, it's, it's when I look at crypto, I think that there's a lot of stuff that I see coming. Um, And uh, I feel like some responsibility to at least talk about it. But yeah, I mean, you're right. We need to, I, I, the way that I try and talk about this stuff publicly is hopefully in a way that is like a good mix of, like funny shit posting without actually turning anyone off um <laughs> in at its best <laughs> um i i'm trying to like sort of keep everyone in the same boat that's been my goal from the beginning i don't want to like pit anybody against each other because this is something we've all got to get through together and for now like for the few of us that are not multimillionaires, uh we've still got to figure out how to make this work for everybody so I'm yeah, and that's why I'm here. I'm happy, and why I'm happy to talk with both of you. Agree, agree <laughs> with that sentiment. I do, I do want to push you on that though, because I think um, I would love to hear what you see coming, and not in yeah. a skeptical way, but I think, I think genuinely, I think it, uh, yeah, like what do you see coming in terms of the um, yeah, in terms of where this may be going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm uh, not a futurologist, so I don't see that far into the future, but I. I guess the 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 thing that seems more most dangerous to me is this kind of financialization or acetization of everything. Um, I, and I know that that was something that you were just saying a second ago. You're excited about, you know, the possibility of like, you know, being able to reward people for every little thing that they're doing that is good. Um, I 
I am not so um, positive on it. I, I feel like I I feel like a lot of what we're seeing in the Web3 space is about kind of removing humans from systems under the guise of making systems kind of more egalitarian um, and basically like saying, you know, we're going to we're going to make this uh, more fair somehow by like tracking everything. It historically, just hasn't worked. That's not the way that fairness works. It's not like the more that you can track things or the better you can track things then, or the more that you can mediate interaction and the more fair things are. It's always that, you know, the automation of systems replicates existing infrastructure. Unless you replace that existing infrastructure, then the new systems aren't going to do anything different. So my, my big concern here is that as we're seeing in some spaces within crypto, we're just going to see instead of like a, any kind of egalitarian infrastructure, we're going to see more kind of hyper-capitalist infrastructure. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess, my big concern is that, yeah. And I mean, I, I even see that in small ways. I see it in artists who are making work right now that feel like, oh, you know, this thing that I would have just sort of posted uh, to my few friends in a private group or even maybe shared on some Web2 service you know, now I'm making an NFT of it. And the fact that it hasn't gotten any bids makes me feel really bad about it. Yep. yep. Um, and, you know, what happened or, yeah. And I, I'm really concerned about, you know, people turning from, uh, people turning from ideas about like public funding towards uh, private funding. I mean, you can't just like reinvent public funding by having like a sufficiently um, quadratically voted allocation of money, right? <laughs> some, like it's not tweet. the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's, I'm sure there's some good things for, for quadratic voting. I'm not against that, but, um, uh, yeah, I think we need to have some base level agreement that like art matters, music matters. And yep. like, we kind of need, to, I mean, this sounds a little weird, but like, we need to sort of charge people a price for admission to society. Like, this is the world we want to live in. We all need to agree on some yep. baseline here. We can't just say, okay, you know, you get to support only the things that you feel like are worth supporting. And that's how people get supported. Um, and that's sort of what oh, I'm seeing. Those are the kinds of, inf that's the kind of infrastructure I'm seeing being built. It's not this system that replicates anything that is, you know, egalitarian supporting everybody. It's something that is like really by, giving everyone the option to decide who they do or don't want to support. That's how we're going to allocate the money. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I where I'd agree with you, I think that actually the the point of disagreement articulated there was actually a point of agreement in a funny way, mm, but like mm. in the sense that like, I think my argument can't speak for Holly is that I don't believe that tracking everything will make things more fair, mm. but I do believe that fairness will be more trackable in this ecosystem, which is a distinction, right? Like, okay. I don't actually the, I mean, my, my point on this, which I've tried, I've, I mean, it's really, really difficult. Cause obviously like I'm someone who's been involved in this for quite a while and I do see a lot of potential there. Um, but from very early on, my whole position really was that I don't actually, I don't actually think that like the introduction of these networks is going to produce some kind of egalitarian uh, utopia. Right. However, I do believe that these networks are going to proliferate. They can be used or like the decision to interact with them is not really in our hands and mm -hmm. that people ought to be aware of that. And I believe that many things can be salvaged from that wreckage, right? So to speak about like in institutional decline in the arts or whatever, 
to me, it's like, you know, it was clear that Web3 was going to present a boon to lots of things I didn't necessarily like. Um, hmm. And part of the message is being like, look, like if you're planning or thinking of ways to structure uh, a, an ideal outcome out of this, one of the benefits of the, the decentralization of these new networks in a way is that you can use that same infrastructure to start scheming what you might want to do with it because it's going to happen. Right. And, and, and I think, right. and we will see, we'll see how, how long we'll see how well that prediction plays out over time. But, uh, but that's always going to uh, be my perspective on it is that ultimately one of the kind of being parasitic to this development, one of the benefits that comes from it is that fairness is trackable, right? So that ultimately when you have, let's say an art practice on chain or fingers crossed more kind of institutions on tra- on chain that task themselves to produce, let's say more egalitarian outcomes, that fairness would be more trackable um, in the same way that, you know, you wouldn't need to do the kind of work that you've done in the past of seeing, of seeing how much people get paid or who's getting paid or, mm. or how accurately uh, an institution institution is is kind of meeting its mandate right so 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 I'd, I'd agree on that i mean i think that the the financialization of everything is a genuine concern and is something that terrify uh, terrifies me or I, I or to be quite honest i also just think is will fundamentally break many of the utilities that it's pinned on right like mm. this conversation comes up a lot in music like i've, I've had conversations with take your pick any web three music project I've basically spoken to at some point. And the, one of the big kind of errors that I, that I think can happen is like, Oh yeah, well we could, now we have this data point. We can like make a, we can productize this thing. And it's like, no, like one of the things that's really striking to me, having some quite a bit of experience in the music industry is like the things that people care about, the things that ultimately have a lot of value, generally speaking happen. Like, you know what I mean? Talking about like an Adele or a Kendrick Lamar or something like this, they happen in the most traditional manner possible. There's a bunch of funds there. People disappear and then they come back 18 months later with something really cool. And that method mm-hmm. has always worked. Like that is a method that's like just a kind of beautiful thing that works in the arts where people need support and then they need to be able to go away and come back with something without feeling a pressure of having to necessarily sell it or meet mm-hmm. the demands of like 200,000 token holders or whatever. Like, right. That prospect is terrifying, but I also think that, that ultimately we've yet to see that produce something uh, of enduring value. And, the, in, and that my hope is over time that that thesis will bear out and that we'll see that actually like a record made by a committee of 500,000 people isn't really going to be all that valuable <laughs> if, uh. if, the, if the source of value fundamentally is the record or the IP underneath it, right? So, But so- I feel like we're disregarding a little bit the fact that Web2 already does financialize almost all of our personal interaction. I mean, it's just, it's done in a different way. It's not as visible to us. It's like, we're incentivized to like things. So it's like some of the exposure that artists are feeling in the auction house, like, you know, having their, having their work valued so publicly. I mean, that, that's something that people feel also by posting on Instagram and seeing how many Mm -hmm. likes they have or how many retweets their tweets have. It's just like these things and these things are being monetized for the platform. It's just kind of not visible totally. and matt's kind of vision of like an artist disappearing and and being able to work i mean you know these artists have teams that have constant engagement with social media yeah. platforms because they can't disengage and if you don't have a team no. that can do that for you you have to stay on and you can never turn off and so it's like are we expecting this new 
this new internet to immediately solve all of the issues of the old internet. I would love for some of those issues to be solved. <laughs> I would love for some of those issues yeah. to be solved, but like, how do we get there? And, and as we, as people are kind of building in public, that's the other thing that I think we touched on a little bit is like so much of this is happening out in the, out in public, which I think is actually really cool as opposed to, you know, things before being built and then just kind of being like released and, and, you know, not really having any say in, in kind of governance or, or features or things like this. I feel like it is a kind of building in public thing that we're able to give, give more immediate feedback on. Totally. And I think there's, um, I mean, coming back to your point about experimentation, I, th I think there needs to be this kind of experimentation, but I think, um, to see the kind of changes that you're looking for, it actually has to happen at a little bit of a deeper level. Uh, I think a lot of the experimentation right now is kind of superficial. It's sort of like tr translating sort of old ways of thinking about value onto this new system. Um, and I would hope that we can go a little deeper, like rethink, you know, something as fundamental as like, should a cryptocurrency be backed by anything? Or like, yeah. what happens when this cryptocurrency is only stable coins? Does that actually make it impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, anyone who's really pro-crypto would hear that and be like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I mean, I think we need to investigate at like a deeper level what's going on here instead of just saying, okay, we're going to run auction houses. We're going <laughs> to, you know, try and recreate unions, except in a way where we no one actually has an individual vote because we don't actually know that anybody's a person and we only know that their wallets like, you know, so yeah, we need to go a little deeper, I think. You know that meme that people often post like Bitcoin fixes this? Oh god. Do you no. know that? Mm. It, no. Well, it's just absurd. <laughs> like the like Bitcoin maxis, like any any kind of like thing that like I don't know if like um Elizabeth Warren tweets anything, they'll just be like Bitcoin fixes this. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> sure. it's like it's like this absurd thing where like, of course, like I believe in democracy, I believe in community organizing, I believe in all of these really, really old technologies that like are way older than cryptocurrency, cryptography in general. And I believe that we should still be investing time and energy into those um, very amazing kind of institutions. It's more about like, how can those fit in with these kind of new tools? Or how can these new tools be used to augment these um, other tools that we've developed together that are that are very effective? Exactly. And, that, and that's the, this, the discernment, discernment point is like, at least for stuff that we're interested in, there's been a few issues where we're like, actually, this expanded tool set provides utilities that are useful for for these specific use cases, which is maybe quite different to given the, you know, the amount of money and hype or whatever uh, uh, that's involved in the space, people trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. letting their practices or their opinions be determined by a couple of popular memes, right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think there just, yeah, there does need to be a lot more experimentation and not just kind of falling for the popular tropes. Um, like we can do, yeah, we can do so much better than just following in the footsteps of a bunch of like cypherpunks who are obsessed with Ayn Rand, you know, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot more to explore in this space. And I just hope that we don't get bunched in. I mean, artists have always been on the outside, ready to innovate and explore and provide a kind of contrary uh, perspective. And um, I would just hope that we don't get kind of wrapped up with this, um, you know, meme driven crypto libertarian economy. Um, yeah. And just explore a little more. Just coming back to what we, what started this conversation, I guess I should just wrap up by saying, like, I realize that probably what I'm doing here is sort of like a losing battle, like uh, 
you know, proof of work, it's a really small contributor to global emissions, like we already discussed. Um, and every like major success in emissions reduction hasn't really come from anyone like protesting or, you know, finding some new technical solution. It's always from some massive crisis or disruption, like, um, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union or the financial crisis in 2008 or the pandemic. So I, I, uh, you know, I guess the, hmm, the only, yeah, the only real successes have been coming recently from like indigenous activists who've been, I think I heard responsible for like 1500 megatons of CO2 per year, which is like, Four wow. percent of the global emissions they're getting like real you know just by keeping new infrastructure from being built they're like making a massive impact um so i'm not gonna like you know make a lot happen from just publishing a paper about 20 kilotons of co2 per day but um i hope that you know having these kinds of discussions can help reorient uh artists and other creative people to like think about what are the harms that we're participating in and how is the infrastructure that we prop up um, kind of supporting those harmful systems? Uh, and maybe we can build that out and identify kind of the the worst cases and not just these kind of middling cases. Yeah. And I think it's also nice to have a conversation in real time like this, because I feel like so much is lost in Twitter banter. It's almost the way that it's designed yeah, <laughs> for people. Right, to, right. It's almost as if it was in, designed <laughs> yeah. for engagement. <laughs> no, but it it really kind of, I think, I think there are a lot of people who really would agree with one another and kind of want the same things that end up kind of, you know, maybe eating each other alive on Twitter or maybe, <laughs> you know, agreements that might seem like uh, oceans apart, but really aren't because it's happening in this particular space. Yeah. So, but, and there's also context bleed, right? It's like, for sure. it's like, on a on a scroll it's like the last <laughs> the last hideous comment you got bleeds over to the next reasonable <laughs> comment or whatever but i think i think you're also i mean i appreciate the modesty but i think you have contributed a great deal and i think that the the publication particularly of this uh of, of this helpful. of this research and Thanks. and i look forward to i look forward to the art project that, that follows it um i think it's really really helpful actually and i think that the um you know, having something to be able to refer to, even if you might have wildly divergent opinions about about, about you know, subjective <laughs> opinions or philosophical yeah, but, but, right. it, but at least that part is like a non, it's like a goalpost that's not moving. It's like, that's like, mm. it, it might not be perfect, but at least it's a kind of a range. And so Absolutely. then people can have disagreements about that, which is great, right. rather than that thing kind of constantly bouncing Exactly. Around. It's a glass of mm-hmm. water in the quest for, for sobriety. <laughs> and it might, and it might, we might yeah. take five glasses of water, but you've definitely contributed one of them so for that i thank you very much thank Carl. you i appreciate it thanks um, thank you so much and thanks for having me on um i have had a really good time chatting and let's ch- talk again sometime about the ml and music stuff for sure we'll have to we'll have to book that because that that's a whole other conversation and yeah please let's book that okay. wait there's one question that we ask all of our guests oh yeah it's true we have to ask can we this. ask it to you do you have time for one more question sure let's do it okay what does interdependence mean to you i think interdependence means understanding my relationships better I think there's a, and this is something I've only been learning in the last few years, but um, I guess I used to have a very vague idea of interdependence that was more rooted in like a Buddhist tradition of like, you know, everything's sort of generally connected and we're all part of the same system. But in the last few years, I've been studying more um, different indigenous traditions. And um, I think uh, I'm starting to see something different that's connected, not just to like 
some vague idea of connectivity, but um, it's about kind of establishing relationships and building them and then recognizing how they all fit together and kind of crafting the way that you move through the world based on those. Um, yeah, that's what interdependence means to me. That's a great nice. answer. That's a great answer. You sound like you're a good friend, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me get back to this non-financialized conversation uh, with uh, my other friends. So, Bye. Thanks so thanks much. Thanks so much. Bye. See, good speak night, soon. friends. Yes. Good Bye. night. G- GN, friends, GN. wag me. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And enjoy, enjoy your day. Bye. Okay. okay.